welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. Acts chapter 17, verses 16 and 17, New International Version. Hello, and Happy New Year! I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. We're excited to be with you at the start of this new year, and we pray this year will bring joy and blessings to all our listeners, especially the joy of having a closer fellowship with our Lord Jesus Christ. Today on Anchored by Truth, we're going to start this new year with a new and frankly challenging series of discussions. As just about everyone knows, the Christian faith in America has been subjected to more challenges in the last decade than probably in the first two centuries of the country's existence. So as we open up this new year, we want to tackle a subject that has particular relevance in our day and time, being able to demonstrate that the Christian faith has a firm basis in reason and evidence. To help us get started on addressing this very important topic, we have R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books, in the studio today. R.D., why are we undertaking this series? Well, we live in an age where the historical cultural consensus, at least the one that many of us grew up with, has shifted. Now, some commentators have said that we are now living in a post-Christian world. And for people who are not believers, this may mean to them that the world has gone beyond the constraints and the, quote, narrowness of Christianity. We know from surveys that fewer people, as a percentage of the population, belong to churches than in past generations, and that many of the mainline churches are experiencing declines not only in membership, but also in their influence on society, on government, on education, the family, and on the culture as a whole. And also, as we look around us, we see that young people, well, they're far more consumed by what's happening with their favorite entertainer than they are with the death and resurrection of Jesus. We see that more and more people are consumed by concern for temporary pleasures rather than their eternal destiny. It seems that everywhere in our society, everything is all about money or entertainment. It's all about personal freedom or free expression. It's all about anything goes. So everywhere we look around us, we can see that it's modern-day Babylon. It's the city of Satan. Everything is, quote, all about me. Well, of course, this is incredibly dangerous, not only to our individual destinies, but it's also incredibly dangerous to the destiny of our communities and our nation. And this danger has been recognized for quite a while now, hasn't it? In their 1994 book, Handbook of Christian Apologetics, Peter Kreeft and Ronald Tesselli, who are both professors of philosophy of religion at Boston College, said the following, quote, 
Western civilizations for the first time in its history in danger of dying. The reason is spiritual. It is losing its life, its soul. That soul was the Christian faith. The infection killing it is not multiculturalism. Other faiths, but not the monoculturalism of secularism. No faith, no soul. Our century has been marked by genocide, sexual chaos, and money worship. Unless all the prophets are liars, we are doomed unless we repent. The Church of Christ will never die, but our civilization will. If the gates of hell will not prevail against the Church, this world certainly won't. We do apologetics not to save the Church, but to save the world, unquote. Exactly. People within the Church have been warning of the danger that we're facing for decades. So we've entitled this series, Truth and Proof, because in it, we want to point people back to the eternal truth that there is a God, and that that God not only has a plan for peoples, but that God also has a plan for communities, for nations, and for the world. And in this series, we don't want to just proclaim the truth, though that's obviously the place where we have to start. We also want to explain the evidence and the reasons behind our belief system. That's the proof part of the series. You know, it's not uncommon, as we've said on Anchored by Truth before, to hear people say in our day and age something like, well, you trust in faith, but I trust in logic, reason, and science. Well, when they say that, they're trying to set logic, reason, and science in direct opposition to faith. And as we've said often before, that is a false dichotomy that tries to say that if you are a Christian and you believe in the Bible, that you have somehow abandoned logic, reason, evidence, and science entirely. And nothing, of course, could be further from the truth. Some of the greatest thinkers of the last two millennia and some of the greatest scientists of all time have been devout Christians. Well, before we get too much further... We want to acknowledge the person who originally inspired this particular series, Dr. Greg Alexander. Dr. Alexander practiced medicine in Tallahassee, Florida for over four decades. But more importantly to us, he led a Sunday school class in his church for more than 25 years. Dr. Alexander is extremely thoughtful and insightful. We are indebted to him for giving us much of the information we're going to bring to our listeners during this series. And Dr. Alexander will be joining us on several of the episodes during this series. As you just said, Dr. Alexander is one of the most thoughtful and insightful people that I know. And beyond even that, he's one of the clearest thinkers that I know. Dr. Alexander has a very mature, intelligent, and coherent Christian worldview. And in that regard, I think he sets a wonderful example that all of us believers would do well to emulate. So, where do you want to start? It sounds like we have a lot of material to discuss, so let's get to it. Well, I think a good place to always start is with defining some terms. So earlier, when you mentioned the book title, you used the word apologetics. And that is a very broad umbrella term for what we're going to be talking about in this series. Apologetics can be broadly defined as a defense of the faith, a defense of our faith. Apologetics comes from a compound Greek word. Greek, like English, has compound words that are made up of two or more other words. In this case, the Greek words are apo, primarily used to mean from, and logos, which primarily means, in its most generic sense, word. Logos is also a commonly used way in Greek, in sort of an expansive way of meaning to reason. 
It means the mental faculty of thinking, meditating, reasoning, and calculating. Actually, the Greek philosopher Heraclitus first used the term logos in that way around 600 BC, and Heraclitus used it to designate the divine reason or plan which coordinates a changing universe. But the Apostle John also used that very same word in John chapter 1, verse 1. The Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 1 says, quote, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, unquote. Apologetics means, quote, from the mind, unquote. And in the sense of John 1, 1, it means from the mind of God. We now use the term apologetics to mean the defense of the Christian faith. Right. But the simplicity of that definition of apologetics as being a defense of the Christian faith masks the complexity of the problem of trying to fully define apologetics. Because it turns out that there has been a diversity of approaches that have been used for defending the Christian faith down through the ages, and many of these approaches might also be classified in some way as apologetics. So the point is, there is no one universal way of doing apologetics which we might sometimes get the idea that there is. And the approach to apologetics oftentimes seems to be determined by the perspectives of the individual or the group who's doing the apologetics. But there are some generally understood terms that we can use to identify apologetic, what you might call, categories. And so many scholars will recognize four basic approaches to apologetics. There's classical apologetics, evidential apologetics, presuppositional apologetics, and what's termed fideistic apologetics. Now, each of these apologetic approaches has a particular focus, and each has its individual champions, not only down through history, but also in modern age. During this series, though, we're going to focus primarily on the classical and the evidential approaches to apologetics because we think that they are the approaches that people will connect with the most easily. Our goal on Anchored by Truth is to help ordinary Christian believers develop a more mature Christian faith and especially to give them tools to help their children and grandchildren do so also. We know that our listeners are serious about their Christian faith and serious about wanting to understand the Bible better. But we also know that most listeners have very busy lives and may not have the time to sort through volumes of information they might like to. So what we try to do is to take areas that pertain to Christianity and sift information for them and for you. We are not professional Christian apologists, and we're not going to become them. We suspect many of our listeners are the same. But that doesn't mean that we can't all learn enough to provide intelligent answers to reasonable questions that might come our way. Fifty years ago, and possibly 25 years ago, if you told someone that you are a Christian, people didn't think there was anything unusual about that. But a lot has changed. Now, it's often not enough to simply know what you believe, but you must know why you believe it. That is unfortunately true. Now, as I just mentioned, some commentators will say, well, we're living in a post-Christian society and we just have to, quote, deal with it. But I'm not as much interested in trying to characterize our society as much as I am interested in trying to change our society. That's what the good news of Jesus Christ has always done. And while overt unbelief may be more common today than it was, say, a few decades ago, in a very real sense, every human society throughout history 
has had plenty of unbelievers. I mean, that was certainly true during the early days of the formation of the church, but that did not stop the apostles and the very first disciples from carrying the Gospels literally to the ends of the earth. In fact, in Acts chapter 19, verses 23 through 41, there is a description of a riot that occurred in the city of Ephesus. Many of the tradespeople in Ephesus were upset because of the increasing influence of the Christianity in their city because of the Apostle Paul's ministry. Verse 23 through 26 tells us, quote, About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the Christianity. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and said, quote, You know, my friends, that we received good income from this business, and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says the gods made by human hands are no gods at all, unquote. And earlier in that same chapter of the book of Acts, it goes on to say that this went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who had lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So Paul's ministry in Ephesus was so effective that in less than two years, just about everybody in the Roman province of Asia had heard the gospel. Asia was a very large Roman province. It was the equivalent of one of the largest states that we have in America today. Yet Paul accomplished that task of delivering the gospel in a society that was not indifferent to Christianity, but openly hostile to Christianity. Paul did that because he not only knew what he believed, but Paul also knew why he believed it. And as we heard in our opening scripture today, Paul regularly reasoned with the people that he encountered everywhere he encountered them. And we have to be willing to do that same thing today. So again, as important as proclamation of the gospel is, explanation of the foundation for our belief in the gospel is now almost as important. And that's where apologetics steps in. Apologetics, as an area of study, can help us add the why we believe to the what we believe. A lot of people who hear the word apologetics may think that the whole idea of studying it might be intimidating. But you don't believe apologetics has to be intimidating. You strongly believe that a good understanding of some of the major apologetic ideas is available to all believers. You certainly don't believe anyone has to go to seminary or attend formal classes to obtain a basic understanding of apologetics, do you? No, I don't. But that's one of the reasons that as we are doing this Truth and Proof series, I don't intend to spend too much time on presuppositional apologetics. Presuppositional apologetics makes the presupposition of the authority of the Bible and the existence of God. It essentially argues that the starting point for demonstrating the existence of God is the presupposition that God exists and that the Bible is authoritative. That sounds like a bit of a circular argument. An argument that assumes the truth of the proposition the argument intends to prove. And I think that's one of the major problems for most people trying to use a presuppositional apologetic approach when they're witnessing to people. Because just about anybody who has even a basic understanding of logic is immediately going to point out to the witnesser that that sure looks like a circular argument. So the very first thing that the presuppositional apologist has to do is to show why it's not circular. Now, I've heard very skilled, professional, presuppositional apologists do just that, 
But frankly, the way they go about demonstrating the fact that the argument isn't circular, well, it just makes me believe that the lengths to which they have to go to demonstrate that persuades me that most of us are never going to understand presuppositional apologetics well enough to be able to present it effectively. Presuppositionalists try to show that worldviews that do not acknowledge the existence of God cannot be internally coherent. Which is a point that we made in our Lord of Logic series on Anchored by Truth. Yes. So, I don't mean to sound like I'm dismissing presuppositional apologetics entirely. I think it has some interesting and valuable points that are contained within their lines of reasoning. But I just don't think it's as helpful or easy to use for ordinary people like me, for instance, as what is sometimes termed classical apologetics. Classical apologetics places emphasis on reasoning and on the rational. It makes use of philosophy and science and all forms of evidence. The key word is reason, for it is rational. Historically, it was the form of apologetics used by Anselm of Canterbury and Thomas Aquinas. In the 20th century, C.S. Lewis and Norman Geisler are two very well-known classical apologists. This is the approach that will mostly be used during this series. Yes, and we may sneak in a little bit of evidential apologetics and historical apologetics. Evidential apologetics, as the name indicates, seeks evidence to demonstrate the truth of the Christian faith. And that evidence could be historical, scientific, archaeological, or even prophetic. Well, the key word in evidential apologetics is fact because it is, in fact, based on empirical evidence. Now, historical apologetics can be seen as a specialized form of evidential apologetics. Historical apologetics stresses historical fact and evidence as the basis for demonstrating the truth of Christianity. You also said you don't intend to do much with fideistic apologetics during this series. No. Fideistic apologetics is based in what's called sola fide, which means by faith alone. The key word, of course, is faith, and that system tends to be somewhat intuitive. Now, Karl Barth was a very famous 20th century apologist who used fideistic apologetics, and Barth had a tremendous influence in some seminaries, especially the liberal ones. Barth held that the Bible was a record of revelation, but that the Bible was not revelation in and of itself. In other words, Barth did not acknowledge the infallibility of Scripture, although he did claim that Scripture was a gateway to God. Now, Norman Geisler, who has done a critique of many of the apologetic approaches in one of his books, says this about Barth and about fideism in general. Fideism is unfounded. To argue that there are no rational supports for the Christian faith is self-destructive. It is an argument in support of a religious position, claiming that arguments cannot be given in support of religious positions. Further, fideism may be internally consistent, but there is no indication of where it touches reality, so it is impossible to distinguish from falsehood. And so the head-scratching and headaches begin. What you're saying is that a lot of different people have come up with different approaches to prove that God exists. But during the series, we are not going to attempt to tackle all the different approaches. You want to confine yourself to just one or two of the approaches, right? Right. And even in the apologetic approaches that we're going to tackle, we're only going to be able to hit the high points. We're just going to be able to hit the key points. 
I mean, there are people who spend their entire lives on just one of these approaches, and there have been literally thousands of books written about apologetics in general, and probably hundreds of thousands written about many of these approaches individually. But as we talked about a little bit earlier, our goal on Anchored by Truth is to present discussions of these important topics that can assist everyday believers to have a more effective witness. We want to help our listeners, we want to help everybody be more effective witnesses to a world right now that frankly is wandering very far from God. I guess you could say our approach to discussing the Christian faith is like the person who wants to be able to prepare a nice meal for their family. You can prepare tasty and nutritious dishes every day without attending culinary school. In fact, many of us had mothers or grandmothers who made dishes we all remember and would happily eat again but we don't know the chemical difference between proteins and carbohydrates. But they knew what they needed to know to take care of their families, and a lot of kids grew up big and strong based on those meals. And they knew how to make things that were not only good for you, but tasted good. That's what we want to do. We want people to understand that Christianity and a Christian worldview make sense. Sure, you don't need to grasp apologetics thoroughly to be a devoted Christian. But in this day and age, you need to know enough to provide some protection for your family. Yes. Now, there was a seminary president named Alex McFarland who tells the story of encountering a 40-something-year-old university professor who had a reputation for denying the existence of God. And the professor ridiculed Christianity. He intimidated his students, especially his Christian students, and he was able to tie others up in philosophical knots. So, Dr. McFarland tells the story something like this. The professor ignored the offer of a handshake and then looked me over and sizing me up. Give me a couple of hours and I can turn any Christian into an atheist, the professor said, even you. Well, in 15 years of teaching the Bible and speaking hundreds of times throughout America, I had never met someone so openly angry and rude. I smiled, and that's Dr. McFarland talking. I smiled at the professor and said, Well, you and the devil are in the same business. I let that sink in, and then I added, he's just faster. What do you mean, the professor replied. Well, in the Garden of Eden, Satan convinced Adam and Eve to doubt God, I explained. Satan turned them into doubters and agnostics, but it only took him a couple of minutes. So for the next couple of hours, Dr. McFarland says that they sat in the professor's home office and talked. And regardless of the conversation topic, the professor kept knocking down Christianity and its followers. He called them ignorant, uninformed, simple-minded believers. And with just as much determination, Dr. McFarland says, I kept reminding the professor about the reality of Jesus and of Jesus' love for him personally. And at one point, I leaned across the desk, looking directly at him in the eyes and said, You are obviously very intelligent and highly educated, and you say you're an atheist. So doesn't it strike you as odd that for two hours I've listened to you talk about someone who doesn't exist? And the point that Alex's story ended with is that this particular person, opposed as he was to Christianity and openly hostile to it, was not ignorant of the arguments of God's existence. He had given the God thing some consideration, but he had rejected the appeals from the Holy Spirit to accept Christ into his life. Well, the story did have an unusual twist, an ending that was unexpected, and one that's especially pertinent for us as we begin this particular series. And the ending of the story goes like this. Again, this is Dr. McFarlane talking. The professor said some things that have stuck with me. The professor said, in a way, I'm envious of people who can have faith. 
But what I can't understand are these Christians who never learn anything about what they say they believe. If I ever did convert, again, that's the professor speaking, if I ever did convert, I would learn everything possible about God. Well, that professor, all of us, everyone, is going to, at some point in our lives, have to make a decision about Jesus. Every single one of us is going to have to develop some kind of a system to answer the questions that are inherent in all of us. Questions like, where did I come from? Why am I here? What is my purpose? And maybe most importantly, what's going to happen to me after I die? So I think that the professor's last observation serves as a pretty good jumping off point for this series. Christians often can't even explain what they believe, much less why they believe it. And that professor had a very good point that because we are Christians, we need to learn everything that we possibly can about God. Because that's the one that we're basing our entire lives on. And frankly, that's the one that we're putting our entire future in his hands. So, in essence, our goal is to help listeners understand how to contend for their faith with certainty and confidence. We're going to make no assumptions whatsoever about what anyone may or may not already know. We're planning to start at the place where all knowledge starts, at the point of the absolute and the knowability of truth. We'll begin with the basic building blocks of knowledge and logic, called first principles, to lay a firm foundation on which we will erect a spiritual skyscraper. We want to show that any thinking person can prove the existence of God. That's very well said. So I think we should close today with two thoughts. First, as we've often said on Anchored by Truth, One of the reasons we want people to develop a stronger understanding of not only what they believe, but why they believe it, is because the world has become an unbelievably dangerous place for kids who are raised in Christian homes. Survey after survey after survey has reiterated the finding that a majority of kids raised in Christian homes, up to as much as 75% of those kids, they're going to lose their faith when they go off to college or when they go out into the world. We have to do a better job preparing our kids for what they're going to encounter when the world says silly things like, well, you have faith, but I have science. Well, the second thought I want to close with today is that we are not going to be able to achieve the objective of helping people understand the basis for our faith without us reminding ourselves that we can only accomplish this objective not only by knowing what is in our heads, But that's not as important as knowing the one that is in our hearts. We're never going to help the Holy Spirit draw anyone to Christ if we only rely on the objective and the academic facts of Christianity. Christians, all Christians, we are called to a ministry of reconciliation. We are called to bridge the gap between Christ and those who are in need of knowing Him. We have to present our reasons. We have to present our underlying witness. We have to present all of this in the way that the apostles taught us two millennia ago. We have to always do this with patience, with diligence, and with love. Well, sounds like we're in for quite a thought-provoking journey. Hopefully not too many headaches. This sounds like a great time to pray. Today, let's listen to a prayer of praise for the adoration of the Creator God who set the cosmos into motion and established a home on earth for his people as he prepares them for an eternity with him in heaven. A prayer of praise for the Creator. 
mighty and everlasting Father, you are a kind and merciful God. You have given us eyes to see, fingers to touch, ears to hear, and minds to understand. You bring us into the full and certain knowledge of your transcendent creative power. When men gazed at the stars and sky, they could perceive the depth, but not measure the distance. Through your grace, man now has the ability to understand that your cosmos is more supremely complex and vast than ever could have been known before. What mortal mind can fathom this magnificence? Praise be to you, Father of the galaxy, and praise to your Son who created at your right hand. It is because of his descent that we will one day be lifted up. So we pray and give thanks in his name. Amen. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, Try out crystalseabooks.com where we're not perfect, but our boss is.